five. Two. Eight. Two. Hello, and as the 5282 number station fades away, welcome to this inaugural episode of 5282. Why 5282? If you're expecting a podcast on numerology, you will have to look elsewhere for your mystical explanations of the universe. This is a podcast exploring popular and fringe culture, focusing on music, film and television. We contend a golden age existed in Western popular culture for a brief but very productive three decades. But we are nothing if not contrarians. And so we'll be discussing culture from any time period that takes our fancy. And of course, the world does not revolve around the West. Uh, just Yorkshire. 5282 is presented by filmmaker, photographer and blogger Kevin Petch. Hi, Dave. Hey, yo, mate. You all right? I'm good, good, good. Excellent. And with us is musician, cinephile and poet William Asbury. Hello, David. Hey, yo, Bill. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Thanks you for coming along. In the chair is me, David Ben, who owns some recording equipment and one day in a pub said, you know what we should do? In this, our first episode, we will be making recommendations for your consuming pleasure, or not as it might work out, and discussing artists who, if they'd made only their first album, would still be remembered. And then 2023 was the 20th anniversary of a publication of Truth and Beauty, The Story of Pulp by Mark Sturdy. We missed our deadline for getting this episode out. Ah, Christmas always gets him away. Uh, but in the second half of this episode, Kevin interviews Mark on Pulp, his book and future plans. Right, let's go. Oh, it's wonderful to have you back. Well, we weren't sure whether or not we'd have you with us today. So, we will start every episode with no Sherbert Sherlock. Each of us is going to recommend something or someone you may have heard of who is very popular, but perhaps you haven't got round to listening or reading them yet. There are a few limits here. We'll just pick an artist or a creator, an album. So, Kevin, I think you're starting with a film. I am starting with a filmmaker called John Carpenter. Everybody's probably heard about uh, every film he's ever made, really. It's Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog, Escape from New York, that kind of thing. But his first film, Dark Star, made in 1974 for a, a budget of $60,000, uh, was made in conjunction with a friend of his called Dan O'Bannon. Originally, it was supposed to be just a short film, but the two of them got together rewrote the script, and it became a feature film. The basic uh, idea for the film is a crew that are on a mission to destroy rogue planets. Dark Star, I suppose, really, is, is it, well, I, see, I see it as a, a, a sci-fi comedy. But I think... Oh, oh, I, I've always taken it quite... I, I love it as well, Kevin. And um, I, I, even though I could see it as having ironic humour, and, I, you know, I, I, I do laugh at these kind of things, I didn't see it as a kind of full-out comedy 
in a sense, I took it quite seriously and, mm. you know, it's a sort of nihilistic statement on the folly of man and, uh, mm. you know, governments and these ironic situations of guys going through space listlessly with no mission anymore because yes, yes. nobody cares, you know. Yes, yes. Doing bad things like blowing up planets. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and not sure why they're doing it either. Um, I do think it features uh, one of the best aliens in any science fiction period, uh, science fiction film for that period. Well, <laughs> I mean, how can you beat a beach ball? With little claws, I can hear them now. Uh, yeah, they were, they were brilliant. It was, it, I actually had to stop the, so when I watched it originally, I had to stop the video because I laughed that much at this, 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 this alien. It was incredibly funny. Very well realised. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the good thing about um, John Carpenter films is, is the fact that he always writes his own music for, for every film. But this one was a little bit different because it was kind of, a, there's a lot of country music in there, which is, which is very, very funny. Uh, they're all there pressing the, the buttons in the, in the capsule and then suddenly country music comes along and you think, oh, wow, <laughs> never expected that. So, released in 74, would you say that's a follow period for uh, science fiction? Uh, not at all, Dave, no. I, I'm up to the sort of mid-70s. There's some brilliant films out there. Uh, the Amiga Man, The Andromeda Strain, Idaho Transfer, THX 1138, which was a pre-Star Wars George Lucas, and Silent Green, and Westworld with Yul Brynner. Brilliant period. So, not just uh, remakes or rehashes of Planet of the Apes? Uh. I love the part of the app. We're in the quiet taste, I think. <laughs> so, Bill, what do you have for us? Well, David, I'm going to bring in a poem from the early 19th century from the great romantic period of poetry by Percy Bysshe Shelley. And the poem's called Ozymandias. A lot of uh, poetry lovers will already know this poem, but I feel that it's something that people should, more generally, should get to know about. Because when you think of some of these poets, you think of 30 pages of um, very, very unfathomable sort of regurgitation of Greek myths with loads of big words you don't understand and rhymes to get tangled up with. Whereas this is a very concise poem and a, with a very concise message. And in fact, David, I can read it to you now. Yep, sounds a good idea. I'll say I will do that. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lips and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So there you have it, a very, very concise message by a man who is probably out of his time, really, a humanitarian with egalitarian sort of views, an outcast 
thrown out of Oxford by writing a treatise on uh, on um, atheism. He died at a good rock and roll age. He died at 30 years old, dry, drowning when he was in a self-imposed exile in Italy with his uh, soon-to-be-famous wife, Mary Shelley, who um, many of you know wrote the novel Frankenstein, which, more than just a horror story, is the, romance, the novel of the romantics. Uh, he was a man who, on walking home, would give all the money out of his pockets to poor people he met on his way, and he is reputed to once given his shoes to a shoeless man. Saying that, he was also up with the fairies and detracted from the real world, and, uh, you know, you could say he had feet of clay, but he was certainly a standout individual. You're getting a rock and roll or artistic um, throw-up more famous after his death. I would say so, yes. Uh, and, you know, not least because of the efforts of his uh, his widow. And also, nowadays, perhaps Mary Shelley is better known. I would say so because of the movies made about her st- from her story, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But, yeah, her family life is, uh, is well worth investigating as well, isn't it? Certainly. She was the daughter of one of the proto-feminists, Mary Wollstonecraft. Mm-hmm. And her father, Godwin, was a a well-known philosopher of the times. Well, thanks very much. So I'm going to round off this section uh, briefly with the second album of My Bloody Valentine. Loveless was released in 1991 and it is the archetypal shoegaze album, a huge, dense wall of gorgeousness. Not a wasted track on the entire album. I highly recommend if you've never, ever listened to it. Uh, Also, it would take far too long to go into here, but it's well worth reading up on how they almost completely destroyed Creation Records. Um, It was quite an epic to make this album, and um, it really stood the test of time. It's not one of those things you listen to and go, oh yeah, that's very early 90s, still absolutely gorgeous. So that's Loveless, My Blood Valentine. Right then, next section. The language is rather picturesque, the meaning is perfect. You flatter yourself. So in each episode, for our first main feature, we will be exploring a particular question, such as, were the Beatles a folk band? Or, what would a clockwork orange be like if directed by Ken Russell? Those will be coming up in future episodes. Today we are wondering about artists who, if they had made only one album... Would they still be remembered? Bill, would you recommend an album? I'm yes, an artist. I, yes, I would, David. I, I'd recommend Safe as Milk by Captain Beefheart and his magic band, which was brought out in 1967. And uh, to me, it is a standout album, at which even though the captain went on to make subsequent great albums and maybe took his music in really surreal avenues, if he just made that one album... I think he'd be remembered. I, I totally agree. It's, it's very accomplished for a first album, isn't it? You know, most first albums, they're, they're, they're lacking slightly, but Safe as Milk is just spot on every track. Yes, and I, and I think every track shows a, a different sort of like reason for that as well. I mean, I have heard in my life, you know, that a lot of cult artists like uh, The Captain have a lot of myths around them, and somebody told me that it was... 
actually recorded or some of it was recorded some time beforehand. A bit like the first Velvet Underground album mm. it's meant to happen, could have been released a year before. I've even been told it was made out in the desert. And then there's a lot of things about the desert and Captain Beefheart. But, I mean, we can see in it numerous influences. We can see numerous outcomes. Mm. We can see the blues. Yeah, it's heavily blues-orientated. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think those that know about Don Van Vliet, which is his real name, um, know that he was very much an adherent of Howling Wolf. And influenced by Howling Wolf, and you know, if you've heard some Howling Wolf, you can definitely hear the wolf in the captain's vocal style. Yeah, exactly. And they went went to school with Frank Zappa. <laughs> but the thing about the album, which I think is another very interesting point, Kevin, is there are a couple of tracks that, for want of a better word, I'd say were in pop terms or even souls. Well, it's soul singing. Mm. There's two tracks that are probably more normal. It's a terrible word I like to, to, yeah. to have to use in this context. But I think they showed that the captain, if he'd got down another road, a road that he definitely wouldn't have wanted to go down, even though late in his career he was forced again to try and uh, embrace that, mm. um, would show that he could have been a bona fide kind of pop singer yeah, totally. or soul pop singer. And I think that yeah. tracks, you know, Call On Me and I'm Glad. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, one of the tracks like, say, Autumn's Child, yeah. you know, we're, we're definitely starting to embrace the avant-garde there. Especially with Electricity. Oh, and Electricity, of course, which is a mainstay of his sets. Mm. Safer's Milk, why? Why is it, why do I think it'll be remembered, you know, if he just made the album? Well, we brought we brought in the, the idea that there's two tracks where he could show himself as a bona fide commercial soul singer. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a great blues singer. Uh, we can bring that in with the very first track. Sure it, enough, and yes, I do. Yes, I do, right, yes. Um, there are other blues tracks on it, of course. Born Ugly, which I don't know if you know, Kevin, was yep. written by Prisoner. I didn't know that, no. Yeah, well, Rykuda, I think Rykuda brought it. There was some deal. I can't remember what it was that... that it, they, they recorded it to give this guy some money or something that was in prison, mm. you know. Um, so that's a, a, the only song written by an outsider, really, even though they, is he called um, Burnman or something, the producer? Right. He gets his name on a few tracks. Mm. I mean, Ry Cooder, I think, was brought into the band. He, isn't, he wasn't a guitarist on their first recordings because I don't, as you probably know, Kevin, they brought out a couple of singles on A&M Records. Right. You know, what was it? Uh, Diddy Wah Diddy and Moonchild. Right. They were the A-sides and then they had some uh, Van Vliet written B-sides. Yeah, well, my, my two favourites, obviously, uh, Electricity and, uh, well, um, Abba Zabba. Yeah. They're my, they're my two go-tos with, with, with you know, that particular album. Does uh, Electricity have a theremin on it? Do you know, I don't know. I might have. Because I think in one of those Magic Band concerts, he had a theremin, you right, know. Right, right. By, sure. Played by one of the band, or...? Uh, on the, yeah, I think it would be, yes. They, yes. Didn't, they didn't bring anyone in special? No, I don't no. think so. It's brilliant. I I, uh, I would recommend it to, to anybody. 
the, I mean, the, 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 what it's good music. Autumn's Child is a very mm. different sort of track, isn't mm. it? Mm. And and the way the way the slide guitar is on Autumn's Child is very very innovative for the time. Mm. It was a lot to live up to, wasn't it? Oh, for for the captain, yes, and he did. Uh, well, and it definitely, yeah. Was, yeah. But it, it was, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, a lot, a lot of bands would not be able to follow that one up. So, as an electronic music freak, I can tell you that Samuel Hoffman did play theremin on tracks six and twelve, which are Electricity and Autumn's Child. All right, ah. and I'd say that's a fairly early theremin track for Main Street Music. I mean, have been around quite, around quite a while, but it was seen as quite fringe. Well, as we know, there's, uh, uh, well, I don't know if it's, is it Forbidden Planet, that's Lost Theremin, or is that some yeah. other kind of electronics? Yeah, I think it's Theremin on uh, Yeah, on well, it was invented in the 1920s, wasn't it, by some Russian person. This would be a topic for a future feature. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, well, the thing is that I find, Kevin, you know, out in my life, that if I play that to younger people, uh, you know, who have got open ears and are yes. heading that direction, you know, they love it. Yeah. You yeah. Know, you know, they think it's great. I, I was like that on the first listen. I just I just was in awe of it. It's got a very nice sound, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, it's a sound that feeling you feel comfortable with that sound, mm. well, especially people like us, I guess, mm. you know. Uh, but, yes, it's a wonderful album. Mm. So, that was Safe as Milk. What's our next album? Well, I thought, uh, David and Kevin, that Roxy Music's first album, if they'd only made that, they'd still be remembered today. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'll start off with my own sort of late teen recollections. That when I saw that album, first of all, and heard it and read the sleeve notes, I actually believe what the sleeve notes said. They said it was something like, uh, this is... Um, a band from out of space, right. like some, and it's rock and roll music, but from a new zone or something, you know, something to that effect. And mm. and the first track, Remake, Remodel, where they actually go into some sort of like stereotypical rock and roll riffs towards the end, mm. and each instrument plays a funny little solo, including Eno. Yes. Um, sort of, you know, underlines that in a way. I think what, I think there's... The sad fact to do with the first Roxy Music and why people might not perceive the band in the way I perceive it and probably you do is that over the years, Brian Ferry and his kind of personality and the way he presents himself has become synonymous with the band. Mm. Whereas when the band first emerged, they were not, you know, like Brian Ferry and, you know, his backing musicians. He might have written everything. But you didn't think about stuff like that. In fact, the most thing you thought about was a guy there with really long hair, yes. slightly bald on top with a name that's got mm. three letters in it, who twiddles knobs. You know, that was... Yes. And then, well, look at that guy with the fly-eye glasses on. You know, and, mm. and in a way, they were, I would say, the art house side of glam rock. Yes, in one definitely. sense. Yeah, I mean... Even though we can say that about David Bowie, if you were talking about music as opposed to, you know, singer-songwriter sort of theatre and things like that, you you could think Roxy Music without. Yes, yes. 
And I think as Eno left, or when Eno was still with Roxy Music, um, he associated with other stalwart people out of that alternative English music scene mm. very early on. Yes. But going back to Roxy Music's first album, there's the artwork, of course, was very different. That, that will be remembered. Mm. It was the start of a long string of Roxy Music girls. Cool. Yes. Women. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not cool. Mm. Um, I've seen that um, uh, Brian Ferry wasn't very happy with some of the tracks and re-recorded them or remixed them. Do you know about that? No, I don't. Yeah, they were re-released later on, uh, which is a shame because I think the original production values are fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, you know, this was more of a proof of Brian Ferry's sort of like... His spin on the whole his, thing. His influence and growing, yeah, yes. um, becoming the persona of Roxy Music. Yeah, and I think that started, well, I think it's there from the beginning, really, in mm. one sense, but it grows and grows. Yeah. So it's very, very good. Yeah, yeah, the whole album's good. And mm. who's it produced by? It's produced by somebody like Muff Winwood or somebody like that, you know, somebody from another era, if you like, like who had mm. become a, a producer. Who's Muff Winwood, we ask? He's Steve Winwood's brother. I was going to say. <laughs> out, out, out of the Spencer Davis group, yeah. And I have to tell you, the producer was Peter Sinfield. Ah, well, there you go. Then, uh, not a relative of the famous uh, Leeds rugby, rugby player. player. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, again, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. You never but know. is he the man that wrote lyrics for King Crimson? Um, yeah. it's, well, that's one click away, but let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> we should know that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, anything else on Roxy, or have you got another album for us? Well, I must say, I'll just add now, and this is going back to my uh, late teens impression, that the idea of the oboe in it, you know, played by um, Andy McKay, was yeah. was quite, you know, innovatory at that time, yes. I thought, in that sort of rock context. Most definitely. Of course, I haven't heard the Third Ear Band at that time, but the Third Ear Band are a totally different concoction anyway. Mm-hmm. And Eno's synth playing was really noise world in one sense. It wasn't, it was like, it was the genesis of synthesizer as we know it. <laughs> um, and Eno was like an anti-musician in a way. Mm. He was mm. a self-proclaimed non-musician, ex-art student type guy, situationist, you know, mm. you know sort of noise meister. Yes. You know, yeah. uh, Mm. He's since become more of a musician. He's since become a lot of things. Yeah, well, yeah. 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 Yes. So, another album? Well, are we going to go on to Curved Air's first album? Yeah, that sounds good. So the name is inspired by a famous piece of music by a minimalist musician composer called Terry Riley, who did a, a piece called Rainbow in Curved Air. They they are interesting. Well, first of all, they I think they would be remembered for their first album because their their breakthrough single Vivaldi is like uh, very much based on like an impression of Vivaldi, the Baroque composer's music. But they are a band with two classically trained sort of musicians. Why I feel that they're different from other bands that have such well-trained musicians is that they a lot of class what we call classical musicians 
who dabble in rock always sound like they're slumming it or they don't really know how to connect, whereas these guys did. Mm. Uh, they had a wonderfully named drummer in Florian Pilkington Meisker. What a name. Um, <laughs> and then they had a wonderful female singer in Sonia Christina. Mm. And they do have a link with Roxy Music in that they didn't seem to have a steady bass player. That Each of their albums seem to have a different bass player on, mm. you know. Right. Which is something we didn't mention with Roxy Music. Um, I've got a feeling their first album, the uh, bass player, might have been meant to be a permanent fixture because he actually writes and co-writes some tracks. Uh, Francis Monkman was the guitarist. He's also good at keyboards and later would be found in uh, Sky, you know, the uh, classical guitarist John Williams. John Williams, yeah. <laughs> Also, at this time, uh, the original, what we could call the original Curve there, made three albums. And um, Francis Monkman, actually, I remember at the time, was interviewed about his prowess on synthesizer. And on the third album, they actually put Sonia's voice through a synthesizer. And it was a, a track, you know, just with her voice through a synthesizer. So they were quite experimental, but they were also rocking. They had very interesting lyrics that were very edgy. And the first album was very attractive, violin-driven, not completely violin-driven, um, and very well played. And on a uh, totally different uh, sort of aspect, it was one of the first picture discs. Oh, wow. Um, I'm not going to say it was the first picture disc because it's like with gatefold sleeves. There's always mm. somebody coming up and saying, oh, no, you're wrong. Mm. You know, with gatefold sleeve, you could say, oh, double freak out by the Muslim invention. And then somebody said, well, what about the Beatles for sale? You know, and, yeah, you know, so, but a very, very early picture disc, it came in, as, in a, a clear plastic sleeve and all the details about the album are actually on the disc. Oh, it? wow. And it's yeah. called, on, it's called uh, Air Conditioning, their first record. Nice, nice title. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, there was plays on that with some of the subsequent albums. Mm. According to the uh, worldwide knowledge web thing, picture discs were around from the 1920s. Oh. And boomed in the 1940s. All right. Yes. Uh, but I do think there were small run marketing gimmicks. I'll, I'll read more and get back to you. Well, I'll tell you one of the things about early picture discs uh, is the bits used to fall out of them. That was one of the things that was a, a downside. I don't think it's ever happened with the Curved O one, but I have a friend that's got an original one. The, the sound mm. quality isn't quite as good as when you have it pressed up on ordinary vinyl. Yeah, they do, they do tend to be a bit sort of wavy, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a bit more of that picture disc world in the late 70s, one there after the post-punk thing. Mm. Mm. You know, I've got some Captain Beefheart ones that were, you know, they're not his official releases, but they're official tracks yeah. put out on yeah. those sort of things. Mm. Um, yeah, then we had the um, the phase in the eighties, I think, with the popularisation of twelve inch discs. A lot of those were brightly coloured or picture discs. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's when it really took off. We were going to talk about Kraftwerk's first album. Excellent. Well, I'll tell you one thing why I want to bring up Kraftwerk's first album is because the present well, the present guy in charge, who's the only original member. <laughs> probably denies its existence you know it's not been officially re-released or anything in any time recently mm. 
and um, where it differs from the common common perception of Kraftwerk it's played with a lot more of the standard instruments played in interesting ways mm, mm. Uh, they actually made three albums before the uh, the, the present first album which is <laughs> Autobahn <laughs> yes uh, yeah. uh, and to me it's like a breath of fresh air mm. the seeds but, were there though weren't they the seeds were there we have the motoric drumming uh, sort of provided by one Klaus Dinger mm. who you know soon formed with uh, Mikhail Rottier Noy and he has that motoric drumming on the very first track I think the very first track would stick in most people's minds mm. Rukzuk and uh, it has some kind of crazed flute on it by uh, Florian Schneider yes yeah some an instrument that Florian would dispense with ultimately mm. as they just moved into computerized mm. synthesizer sounds you know like when they they when you when you saw that saw them went after autobahn and everything they were just stood there yeah what was the on stage persona when they were do, doing this with the ordinary instruments well i don't i still don't think they kind of leapt around much they were still, still yeah still yeah a bit so i've, I've, I've yeah. seen some beat club footage right and you know they do sort of sit there but they're not they don't sit there and emphasizing the kind of robotic look right they're just yeah. like a kind of more of a band that's involved in making their music so i mean except for klaus dinger you know when he's on the drums he looks like a wild man yeah yeah arms flailing all over mm. the place mm. which was part of his trademark yeah yeah um i mean the, se the second track stradivarius there's only four tracks on the album two on these side uh that's very very uh involved with violin mm. in a very avant-garde sort of way yeah yeah and uh, not like john kell with his three-string drawn <laughs> <laughs> in a different way but yeah. in that kind of you know in that avant-garde world mm. but different yeah mm. yeah von himmelhock that that's the one that's got the flying bomb type sounds on it isn't it mm. which when i see the translation here which i've never seen before actually and i don't speak german from heaven above, mm. that probably is it when it's yeah. going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting so. stuff. So actually, this album is uh, quite hard to get hold of. This and Craftwork too. Mm. And, uh, and the third one, Ralph and Florian. Yeah, they, um, the band did refer to it as archaeology, right. and oh. uh, <laughs> have shown no interest in re-releasing it. No. But you can hunt around, as I am doing right now, yeah. <laughs> and find bootlegs and other copies. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, of course, they, they made an album before the first one where the both both guys are in it called... Uh, or by They call themselves Organisation. Mm -hmm. And my pirate version of that brands it as a Kraftwerk album. Ah. You know, yeah. Mm. Even though it's not really, you know, no, sort of they had properly a Kraftwerk. They had not got that identity at that point. No, no. but Kraftwerk still, in emerging sixty nine seventy. Yeah, it's still kind of pretty weird, you mm -hmm. know. Yep. They play some toy instruments on it and things like that, but they have other members. Kevin. Yeah, I'm going to slightly change things a little bit with an album that came out um, in 1990 by the Lars, a self-titled album um 
the thing about the Lars was they only ever made one studio album, so it, it kind of turns this on its head a little. Well, they're the case of point then, aren't they, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, brilliant album. Um, obviously, the single that, that came from it, There She Goes, has been used in kind of every every film that you can think of, really. It's, it's always there. Um, and maybe sort of what happened next, the, the fact that they only made that album and the, uh, the lead vocalist, Lee Mavers, he, he, he was such a perfectionist that he was never happy with it. He was never happy with the record as a whole. And he always wanted to keep going back into the studio again and again and again to improve it and everything. And, and did it take around two years or more to record? Exactly, yeah. And, and so did that scupper the idea of any second album then, that, I, you know, what you've just said? People... Did they try to make a second album? People left. People, oh, right. just, people just left. The, the, a guy called um, John Power, um, who, was, who was in the Lars with um, Lee Mavers, went away and formed another band called cast which yeah, I, most people will have heard of. yeah well i've had their albums and i, I yeah. am I, I mean i can't contribute with specifics with the lars mm. but i remember when i bought a second down cast record and i read a bit here and mm. then i realized that they were a fabled band that mm. were much kind of applauded mm. lee mavers does come back every so often and, and plays with with john power on on, on you know live live stage shows and everything but it is ne never really sort of come back in the in the form of the lars which is which is a shame one of them died rec quite recently actually and uh, would you say it's a absolute classic now because researching this we saw that it only charted at uh, 30 the album when released mm. and it's strange that because i remember all the fuss when it came out the very positive critical acclaim mm and buying it and really enjoying it mm. um, and wondering, you know, why, <laughs> why it never came together. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's a good counterpoint to artists with a long uh, history. They have this one fantastic album. And do you think it stands the test of time? Uh, you can listen to it now and you would think it was recorded yesterday. It's, it is that good. Yeah. Time is short. Have we any honourable mentions? This is a broad topic. I've got two or three people I can think of. Kevin? Mm, um, Jethro Tull's uh, This Was, brilliant album. Uh, Kate Bush, The Kick Inside. Absolutely. Uh, Johnny Mitchell, Song for a Seagull, absolutely fantastic. Bill? Oh, we've got Soft Machine's first uh, self-entitled record. We've got a very famous album in the pipe of The Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd's first Pink album. Pink Floyd, yeah. Yep. Yeah. We've got Arthur Brown, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, the album with fire on. Incredible. We've got John Fox's first album, who was the original singer of uh, Ultravox. Yes. Some people yes. don't know that album. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but there yeah. again, you see Ultravox's first album. If they just made that, I mm. feel they've been sort of uh, remembered. Yeah, and then John Fox came back as a solo artist again after that, didn't he? Yeah, well, that's mm. what I'm saying about Metalatic. And, yeah. and I think mm. we'll be doing uh, at least another programme on John Fox. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I know he's a wonderful uh, artist to think about. MC Five, Kick Out the Jams, The Shadows, mm -hmm. which you might think a very obvious, famous band, but say if they'd only made that and they hadn't gone on to, with Cliff into musicals and made <laughs> lots of Dross films and things. Oh, sorry, <laughs> shouldn't be judgmental. Um, <laughs> Noi, 
Mm. You know, there's a lot of popularity with that sort of um, motor and drumming and mm. Uh, mm. minimalist approach mm. to things. I think I'll stop there, really, because I, I could come out with some other... So things. I was going to say I've got three more recent, more commercial things. Uh, I'd go with Moby, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, his first album in UK was the story so far. Mm-hmm. I think Moby was uh, extremely influential with dance and electronic music, mm-hmm. very commercial, but also I'm very fond of The Selector and their first album, Too mm-hmm. Much Pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, Pauline Black. Absolutely classic, two-tone. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, Madness, yep. who had massive commercial success. I think more than The Selector did. Uh, but One Step Beyond is... For people of my generation, the tops. <laughs> down, down school disco. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think John Lennon uh, sort of name checked them once, Madness. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very good. Thank you very much. But don't hesitate to call on me anytime you need help. Or maybe just plain board. So we call this section, Is There Wine and Cheese? We will be reviewing events, gigs we've been to recently, all looking forward to things we have planned. So Bill, who and I are going to see Soft Machine. That's right, David. Um, And uh, for those of you who do know or don't know, Soft Machine is one of these bands that have had line-up changes right since their interception. uh, And inception, sorry. Um, and the lineup now is nothing like the lineups, say, when they were last called Soft Machine. Uh, this band has morphed from being called Soft Machine Legacy, which had various key former Soft Machine members, which it still does have in, uh, though they might be getting a bit thin on the ground now. But it does play, as part from its own mu- new music, it does do new versions of classic soft machine tracks usually from their more jazz rock period yep and we'll be back in the next episode with a, a short review i think kevin what have you been up to right dave well i went to the howard assembly room in leeds uh, to see hack poets guild um a brand new um folk music collaboration um with some some folk royalty really um mary waterson the surname speaks for itself. Uh, Lisa Knapp, um, a BBC Radio 2 Folk Award winner, and Nathaniel Mann. Um, they were playing the, uh, the, their album that, that, that's just been released, um, which is called Black Letter Garland. Um, it's 12 songs in the style of the historic broadside ballads, which were a precursor to the modern-day news media, um, which was like one sheet of, of paper costing about a penny. Uh, with illustrations and text on them. They always had had songs on them as well, so that's where the idea for these broadsides came. Um, three of the songs that they sang, the standout songs for me, were uh, Ten Tongues, uh, Hemp and Flax, and Daring Highwaymen. All of uh, these these are available um, on uh, YouTube, so uh, we'll leave the, the links on the uh, web page. That's fantastic. Thanks very much. As if he were reaching for something, something specific. I don't understand it. They'll be masterpieces. 
2023 marks the 20th anniversary of the publication of Truth and Beauty, the story of Pulp by Mark Sturdy. It's quoted as the first major book to tell Pulp's weird and wonderful story. And we're very lucky to have the author with us in the studio today. Mark Sturdy, welcome to 5282. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, sir. Um, so when did you first discover Pulp? I was a pretty standard Pulp fan, really. So mm-hmm. I was in my mid-teens, I guess, when they when they first came around. Um, oh, no, not when they first came around, because mm-hmm. I, I would be... I'd be as old as you if you were in my mid-teens then, Kevin. Ooh, cruel, um, cruel. But, um, no, they, um, yeah, when they started really breaking through, sort of 94, mm. Um, mm. that was roughly the time when I was getting properly into music as well. Right. Who else were you listening to at the time? Uh, I was, guess I was sort of aware of the early Britpop bands, sort of Suede and Denim and things like that, mm. um, along with various less cool things that we won't, uh, won't mention. <laughs> um yeah, a f- friend of mine, uh, yeah, he gave me uh, his and hers an intro on tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his and hers had just come out, so right. it had been uh, spring 94. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, very, very quickly, you know, I could sort of see that, yeah, this was this was something different and it kind of it hit home with me and it, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it kind of built from there, really. Right. Oh, brilliant. So, so how did the idea of writing a book about the band come about? It's not, not something that people do... On a day-to-day basis, is it really? It's not, but um, I found that um, as you do when you're that age sometimes mm. and you become very enthusiastic about something, I found mm. myself getting very knowledgeable about Paul right. in quite a short, short space of time. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of quite intrigued by the fact that they'd had this long history before they made it. Mm. Um, you know, there's, you'd read an interview with them and there'd just be a passing reference to, uh, oh, this band's got a murky indie past and has been around for 15 years, mm, which mm. is not the sort of thing you normally read in The Enemy about a hot new band. But, yeah, 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 so they, yeah. Were, they were kind of strange in that sense. And it was kind of, well, this stuff that I listen to is fantastic. Mm. Um, you know, what else is there if I, if I dig back? Right. And, um, yes, quick, quickly sort of realised there were, they had a really interesting history mm. of, you know, that they'd gone through all sorts of phases musically, mm. um, loads of ex-members and things like that. Um, and it, it just wasn't, it wasn't a story that anyone had really delved into that much, a, a little bit occasionally. Right. Um, and books started coming out. I mean, mm. In, mm. at that time, you you know, you go into the book section of, of HMV in the mid-90s and whoever the big bands were that year, You'd see, you probably remember them. There'd be these like sort of eighty-page glossy yeah. books that were mm. mainly photos mm. and mainly mm. sort of uh, press cuttings or whatever. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you could just sort of tell that you know someone had just knocked it out over over the weekend to uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. get a bit of holiday money or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, being a fan, I was duty bound to pick them up, and yeah, I'll just flick. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. They've, they've missed all this stuff out here. Right, um, and I just. Sort of, well, I'll have, I'll have a go myself, and I just yeah. started cracking on with it. That's amazing. So, tell us a bit about your, your sort of um, writing process. Yeah, it was. I mean, bearing in mind I was seventeen when I started, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. didn't really know how you go about writing a book. Mm. Um, if there is one way, there isn't really, is there? No. Um, but my writing process at the start was to get stuck in mm. and get enough of it done. So that 
by the time that initial rush of enthusiasm had uh, worn off a little <laughs> bit, I was too far in, so I couldn't yeah. stop. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd kind of I'd made I'd made a big long list of like ex members and people I wanted to track down, mm. Mm. and um, this was just just pre internet, just about, and I just sort of spent a lot of strange afternoons in in Weatherby Library, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> going through the Sheffield phone book on the microfilm. Oh right, yeah, wow, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of getting everyone every every Thompson in the Sheffield phone book, so I could try and. <laughs> track down uh, yeah, their, their yeah. second bass player from 1980 wow um, and yeah lots of lo- lots of silly little things like that and yeah that's that's kind of where it started from a nice one so how many different titles did you wrestle with before decided on truth and beauty yeah, truth and beauty was the only serious one mm. um it was i quite liked it because it seemed to be a sort of a bit of a cult a pulp catchphrase that had mm. kept on recurring over the years it had been um been a lyric in a um, in a rather strange early song of theirs called "The Will to Power," right? Which was a a Russell Senior composition. Right. Uh, mm. Maybe some of the people at home have heard it, but yeah, it's kind of a lot of ranting about sort of Nietzsche, um, which is, is yeah, it's a long way from common people. It um, is, isn't but, it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but they yeah, it kept on coming back. You, you'd see. I mean, when Common People came out, mm. I remember the poster campaign. Mm. There was like a series of posters. There was one that said, you can't buy truth. And another that said, you can't buy beauty. Oh. And then the third one was, you, you can buy common people by pulp. And there was just funny little things like that mm. that just kept on popping up. And it, it, yeah. it just stuck. So I thought I'd, thought I'd go with that. Who did you speak to and who didn't you speak to during the uh, process? As I said, I got my hit list early on of obviously the current members and um, the 20 or so ex-members they'd, they'd, they'd gone through at that time. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, they were, they, they, were a, um, they were a small, not terribly successful band for, mm. you know, 15 years. So yeah, I guess uh, yeah. there was, it would take a special level of commitment to actually stick through it, when, mm. stick with it when it's not making any, any waves, really. Mm. Um, naturally, I would have loved to have got Jarvis, um, and I tried. Mm. Um, and, yeah, he wasn't up for it, which uh, was not that surprising, because, mm. I mean, he's, even though he does loads of press all the time, mm. I think artists getting involved with books being written about them mm. tends to be quite a rare thing you know they're, t- they're usually prefer to hold back to uh, for themselves do their own book yeah, <laughs> yeah. which um, Jarvis of course has done 20 years later yes yeah. um, what took him so long I, I know, well he's a procrastinator isn't mm. he you know? <laughs> yeah um, but yeah no he um, yeah I, I tried quite persistently and he, he, did, he didn't try and sort of stop me I have to say you know his, there mm. were a couple of like I spoke to his sister, for example, and she said, um, "Well, you know, I'll I'll talk to you, but I'll need to clear it with with Jarvis first. And yeah. he, he was, you know, yeah, yeah go ahead. Mm. Um, so yeah, fair. And in a way, the book didn't suffer that badly for him not being involved mm. because he's spoken to so many people over the years, done so many interviews. I had a huge, yes, sort of mm. bank of interviews and press cuttings to uh, to draw on. So that was fine." Mm. Um, and yeah, the other members of the band, I mean, most of them sort of fell in behind Jarvis in that respect. Mm. Um, Nick Banks, um, I did get to speak to. He was absolutely great. Um, quite late on in the whole process, um, he uh, we did a very, very long interview with him. So mm. yeah, he's mm. he's quite extensively quoted in the book, um, which was which was really great. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, the 
most of the sort of earlier members I spoke to sort of going right back to the, um, the when they first sort of formed at school, you know, sort of, I mean, they'd be, it started in the late 70s, so it's going back. Mm. Even then it was going back a long way, yeah. um, which was quite nice because most of them hadn't spoken to um, anyone before, really. So oh, right, I yeah, think they yeah, were sort yeah. of relishing mm. the chance to kind of tell their story. I mean, there, there wasn't mm. anything juicy. There was no <laughs> no one who had a sort of, well, I've been ripped off and they treated me very badly. Mm. No one had that <laughs> kind of story. But I think a lot of people were just pleased to uh, kind of have their part in it recognised, really. Mm. Mm. Um, but you did actually meet Jarvis later on. I did later on, yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, he... Um, he did a book signing uh, when he put his lyrics book out in Sheffield. Mm. Um, it was quite a few years after after my book came out, so I thought, well, you know, I would have gone anyway as a fan. But yeah, yeah. I kind of, you know, waited my place in line and kind of uh, yeah introduced myself and uh, sort of explained who I was and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, he was he was uh, he was very civil. He, uh, mm. oh, he was like, oh yeah yeah, I've actually read that. Um, mm. Yeah, it was, it was pretty accurate actually. Wow, and, that's uh, quite a compliment, isn't it? Really? Oh yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he didn't like call for security or anything. You know, <laughs> get me thrown out of Waterstones. Mm. Um, yeah, he wrote, wrote in the book. Here's to truth and beauty. So you know, he, he wasn't bluffing. He knew what the book was called. Wow. Um, wow. So uh, yeah, yeah, that was quite nice. And you had certain people come to to your book launch as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah, uh, Nick came. It was at the Washington in Sheffield, mm. which uh, I mean, Nick Nick was landlord there for a while, mm. and. Uh, yeah, um, Richard Hawley uh, showed up uh, fairly late in proceedings, which mm. was uh, which was quite funny because I, I think <laughs> I think he'd had a few. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he was kind of quite insistently asking, you know, why, why didn't you talk to me? Mm. And um, I mean, I would again, he was someone who I would have loved to have had involved. Yeah, um, yeah. But he'd um, because I was kind of going through Pulp's management, and he was involved with them at the time as mm. kind of a touring member. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was the proper channels, and it it, it kind of stopped at Jarvis. So I, I never got as far as him. So mm. Uh, mm. yeah, maybe maybe one day if I uh, if I get to do it all again, um, yeah, yeah mm. people like that might be involved. Right, uh, Richard was 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 there at one of the, the the newer concerts that you went to, wasn't he? With the, the recent ones. Uh, yeah, he, he did. I think he did one of the nights in um, in Sheffield at Sheffield Arena. Mm. Um, mm. I think I went to the other one. Oh, did right. it, no, wait, no, I tell a lie. No, mm. you're absolutely right. Yeah, he did play mm. that night. I mm. was there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think I might have I might have been getting my chips while he was on, to be honest. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're better have been worth what, it, what I, could, what I could hear from the catering <laughs> concession sounded very good. Thank you, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. So how did he go on about finding a publisher then? I mean, Omnibus Press, they, they, they were the people to go to, weren't they? Were they yeah. they're the first that you approached? They were, yeah. Um, that was... Um, Again, it was it was youthful naivety. I never never had an agent or anything. Mm. So, mm. aged yeah, seventeen or eighteen, wrote off with like the first little bit that I'd written. Mm. Dear sir or madam, here's my book about pulp. Right. Uh, would you be interested in publishing it? Yeah. Uh, they said no. Oh. Due due to me being clearly very young, yeah, experienced, I suspect. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I talked to a couple of other publishers, never really got a bite. Um, mm. I'd, I'd go back to Omnibus every year or so. And mm. uh, yeah, they kept on sort of saying, "Well, you know, I see that you're sort of getting really stuck into this. Mm. Keep on sending us your stuff. You know, we're not yeah. going to pick it up at the moment, but we're possibly interested." Yeah. And yeah, 2002 it was. They uh, said, "Yeah, we're going to give you a yes to this." Wow. 
Um, I bet that felt amazing. It, really. it did, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was um, I'd gone through sort of sixth form and uni at that point, and I was mm. sort of temping in an office somewhere. Got a got a call at about four in the afternoon, and uh, yeah, it was a. Uh, it brightened my day quite considerably, I would say. Wow. Next best thing you're a published author. I mean, that that's amazing. It really, it really is. Yeah. So in the past sort of twenty years, you've published a book. Um, once formed your own band um, on Exploded Shells, which I thought were great. Um, edited a music magazine, set up a record label, promoted, and become a DJ. What's next for Mark Sturdy? You know, I'm working in music education these days. Mm. Um, I've run a, a Saturday music school for Leeds City Council in Horsforth. Mm. And I work at Leeds Conservatoire as um, a booking agent for mm. sort of um, student bands doing commercial kind of gigs mm. and um, as a kind of a careers officer, I suppose, is mm. the best uh, mm. best way of describing what I do. It's kind of about employability skills and things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm still involved in other bits and pieces around music um not regularly writing haven't haven't really done much of that for quite a while mm. um there is a possible new book in the offing Ooh. which i'm not going to say anything about yeah so not it, not an updated um truth and beauty then not an updated truth and beauty no right um yeah i have talked to omnibus about that mm. um the um i thought maybe this year actually with them playing gigs again it might have been a, a possible in but uh, mm. they uh, said well unfortunately we've got another pulp book coming out this year which turned out to be nick banks's memoir yes so uh, fair yes. fair enough yes. really have you read it i have yeah mm. i'm halfway through actually yeah. right yeah no it's uh, it's very entertaining and what about jarvis's book did you read that naturally yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah no i thought it was thought it was lovely actually i was surprised by it as well because he'd mm. he'd is has been a bit reticent about talking about those very early days, mm -hmm. which is what the book is. I mean, it yeah. stops in 1986 or something. Right. Um, but no, he's he's gone right back into his archives and mm. talks about all these sort of first attempts at songwriting and mm. early gigs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a really fascinating read. Ah, certainly if you're mm. me, anyway. Nice one. Um, I remember having conversations with you before. Uh, about an elusive pulp gig that you've not really been able to pin down. Oh, at Cosmos. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yep. What's all that about? Um, well, <laughs> if anyone, if anyone out there is listening who mm. saw Pulp at the Cosmo Club in Chapeltown in mm. spring 1984, do get in touch. Um, yeah, part part of the book, you know, I I kind of track down the dates of every gig that they've done. Mm. And there is no evidence of this gig having taken place apart from all the people who remember being there. And some of the support bands as oh, well. Oh, yeah, the Mirror yeah. Boys, yeah. legendary mm. Leeds, new wave, sort of post-punk band of the time yeah. were, the, were the main band. Um, it was supposedly, I mean, people who've been to Cosmos might be able to corroborate this or not, but uh, right. it, was, uh, it was supposedly a bit of a seedy joint at that time. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I mean, Russell from, from Pulp has been known to embellish things but he, he said yeah it was it was basically a brothel at that point and, uh, wow we had, really? this, <laughs> we had this bloke in the band who would um recite poems between the songs at this mm. time they were, mm. they were quite sort of arty yeah and he uh, he did this one that was that was blatantly about prostitution when the mc had just been on before saying uh, for you gentlemen in the audience there's lots of lovely ladies upstairs who can't wait to meet you um, <laughs> all right and yeah these 
gangster types in the audience were mm. supposedly sort of making gun shapes with their hands at them. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I've never never been able to track down um, anything in the Evening Post or Leeds or the paper or anything like that that's actually mm. got a date for that gig. So wow! If you if you're listening at home and mm. you've got your 1984 diary by your bedside, then uh, yeah, do look it up. Uh, Truth and Beauty is available in softback and as an ebook from most online stores. It's uh, well worth a read. I, I've read it twice, Mark. So it's twice it's, more than I've read. Uh, it. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow. We have a cover to cover. Oh. Mark Sturdy, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us on 5282. Thanks very much, Kevin. Music, singing, gibberish. So, this section of our podcast is called I Haven't Heard of It Either. Now, I'm hoping this will not become a competition between presenters, which means it will become a competition between presenters. In contrast to our early recommendations, these are all willfully obscure. Gems not just hidden, but buried deep below some remote mountain, maybe in a magical kingdom, which you can watch on Netflix. Um, The only rule is, lads, is that finding them should not be impossible. So no CDRs of a band that played Darlington twice in 1995... Although I think me and Kevin might have quite a few of those sort of CDRs. Oh, yes. So my recommendation is an album. It's Electric Head by The Grid. Released in 1990, it features Richard Norris and Dave Ball. Dave Ball, known as being the keyboard player from Soft Cell. It's a very interesting album because it's a bridge between the 80s synth pop uh, with quite strong sort of German electronic music influences, um, ambient and material... But you can see how dance music and techno are going to come evolve in the years to come. No real hints of trance or anything. You can see that there's System 7 in there and Gorilla could probably have heard of this album and, and were strongly influenced by it. They had a career which has spanned 30 years. They're still making music and have had a, a remix of the CD in um, recent years. Uh, I definitely recommend digging it out. It's on streaming services. I think you might be able to get it on Amazon as well. So, talking of German electronic music, Bill. Well, I'm going to recommend, uh, and this goes back to one of our early parts of the programme, uh, the third Kraftwerk record, which um, is the one just before Autobahn, where uh, their official history now starts. And this album's called Ralph and Florian from 1973. And I feel it's, well, it's, you know, it's one of my favourite albums and um, I feel it was like, they, if you do want to compartmentize their music, it's it's where the, the early Kraftwerk, where they reached to, though you can still hear elements of it in Autobahn on the second side. Um, it uses synthesizers. Uh, but he also uses standard instruments like the first album with them um, in an interesting way. It's just Florian Schneider and Ralph Hutter. There's no additional instruments, so there are sort of, you know, multi-tracks. Um, it's got one of the, rec- uh, the tracks of the six tracks is called Tanz Music, which means dance music, and in a way... Uh, you know, factoring in what David has just been saying about the dance scene and things, you you could say that this has definitely got those sort of elements in some sort of Fred Flintstone-esque sort of way. <laughs> um, 
He's got the Pineapple Symphony on the same side, which is maybe the longest piece on the album, which has a wonderful use of some sort of pedal steel, sort of slide guitar mm. thing, I wouldn't like to say totally was. It's got still got the flutes. Florian still has his flute here and there. Um, there still are the ch- slightly challenging tracks, you know, with a sort of slightly atonal sort of tracks. But some of it's a bit like sort of German sort of classical music from the 18th mm. century mm. played on some weird hyper drug and sort <laughs> yeah. of taken out yeah. into outer space and given a sci-fi dusting, mm. you know. It's a wonderful album. Uh, sadly, not officially available, though there are various pirate versions of it and there have been some high quality, I think it was officially briefly uh, released. Uh, I, I'm sure you'd be able to get hold of it if you really try. So... Kevin, easy go or suggestion oh. equally elusive? Oh. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> right, how obscure do you want to get? <laughs> go on, give us a go. Right, we're going down the uh, horror B-movie road. Usually when a film's got three titles, you're usually in trouble. <laughs> and this one has its a film called Seeds of Evil, a.k.a. Garden of Death a.k.a. The Gardener. Stars Warhol superstar Joe Dalcendro. Uh, he was mostly famous for Flesh, Trash, Heat, uh, Lonesome Cowboys, films like that. He plays Carl, the creepy gardener, who has the ability to... <laughs> sorry, this is so... He has the ability to communicate with plants and can turn himself into a tree. I think our monarch may have seen that. <laughs> yes. I'd like yes. I'd like to ask you, Kevin, what, what year did this come out? 1974. Right, okay. Well, a lot of those war-held people didn't live that long, so no. long did they? No. You know, so. Has it got three titles because it was released in different countries under different names, or was it just, you know, hey, we can't decide? I think sometimes what they do this so that they can release it three times and people will buy it because they don't realise they're buying the same film. <laughs> Great marketing. It's very, very good marketing. So you've yeah. got to be careful with this. I mean, it's sometimes shown on TCM, which is, you know, classic, uh, Turner classic movies, and it's shown sometimes on the Roco channel. The DVD goes for really silly money, so you don't, you don't want to go anywhere near the DVD. Um, it was directed by a guy called James H.K., I was far as I'm aware, never made another film. Is it in the Edward world? Um, I would say it's worse than the Edward world, really. Has he got, you know, bad special effects? And it's just, like well, this, I, I suppose maybe the special effects are the, the best part of it. It's just that Well, you know what I mean, Adam, yeah. obviously. People love yeah. bad special effects. Mm. But the, the photography is horrendous. The, right. the script is... Rubbish. So just to check, why are people watching this again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hmm. Well, that seems to be all. Well, until we meet again. Take care of yourself. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of 5282, which is a out-of-left-field production. You can follow us on X at O-O-L-F Presents 5282 and O-O-L-F Presents 5282 on Facebook. And that's for numbers 5282. The producer was Kevin Petch. Engineering and editing was by David Benn. And William Asbury was on drums. 5282 is part of the Acast family. <laughs>